Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. Join us on our journey into the past, the present, and the future as we explore the relationship between technology and humanity. Together, we're going to find out what it means to live in a society where everything is connected and the only constant is change. Knowledge is power. Now more than ever. Black Cloak provides concierge cybersecurity protection to corporate executives and high net worth individuals to protect against hacking, reputational loss, financial loss, and the impact of a corporate data breach. Learn more at blackcloak.io. Just like that, Marco. Just like that. It's a new day. We're off it's a and running. It's a good go. day to talk about privacy, isn't it? <laughs> every day is a good day to talk about privacy. I think uh, every year we've, uh, we've well, most years we've had the publication running. We, we've considered privacy a top issue and uh, been involved in the National Day uh, with our good friends at National Cybersecurity Alliance which has been extended to a week. So we wanted to kind of kick the week off here on the opening day of Data Privacy Week 2022. And I heard next year is going to be a month. Data and then Privacy finally, month. we'll be at 365. <laughs> so we can be thinking about privacy <laughs> all, year, then, all year long. And then eventually we won't have to think about it. right? Yeah. We'll yeah, see why, yeah, if it's a good why. thing or a bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, I'm excited for today's conversation, and thanks, everybody, for joining us uh, for the live uh, stream here. If you're watching on demand, I uh, appreciate you doing that as well. And, of course, uh, if you're just listening and you don't get to see this funny-looking face, uh, still appreciate you tuning into that. This is going to be a good conversation. We have different perspectives. We have... Uh, researchers looking at this from uh, from what does it mean to have privacy to organizations that provide ways for companies to ensure they're meeting the guidelines, both regulatory and internal policies that they have and hold themselves and be held accountable to those guidelines. And then we have somebody from a company who is very highly connected in the community and, and is interested in privacy and kind of breaks it down for the everyday user happens to work for a company as well, of course, as most people do. And uh, so I think those three different perspectives. And then of course, Marco, you and I have nothing to say here, but uh, we're here we're, in black and white. Here we are in black for those and white. watching for the company. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so uh, I'm going to do a quick round. Uh, let folks say a few words about their role and their uh, maybe a sentence or two about their view for why this is an important topic this week. I'm going to start with Nicole Davenport. And you're muted, Nicole. Everybody's muted, by the way, after the... Yeah. Hi. So I'm Nicole Davenport. I am the Chief Privacy Officer at High Trust Alliance. Um, I have, I'm also the VP of Privacy Programs. High Trust provides cybersecurity and privacy assurances. So third party, we audit the auditors to make sure that you actually are 
um, complying with the policies. You don't have paper dragons. You're, you're really doing the right thing with cybersecurity policies, procedures, uh, privacy as well. Um, I'm here to at high trust to, to boost that up a little bit. Um, I am one of those recovering lawyers. So I bring both perspectives. Uh, I did a stint at Deloitte where I helped build out GDPR and CCPA programs for companies. So I've kind of seen it from anywhere from a startup until, you know, a Fortune 10 uh, all over the place. So it's certainly been an, an interesting ride. And thanks for having me today. Yeah, it's great to have you on. Uh, interested in your perspective from, from multiple angles there. I'm going to go to Jen next. Hi, I'm Jen King. I'm the Privacy and Data Policy Fellow at Stanford's Institute for Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence. Uh, and I have been uh, researching privacy for about 15 years. My background is information science, human-computer interaction, uh, but I also dabble in the law and policy side as well. But I'm not a lawyer, so do not take anything I say as legal advice. That's Thank right. you. No, no legal advice here. Certainly not for me. You don't want it for me. Uh, certainly... Uh, last but not least, uh, Mark. Thanks. Uh, my name is Mark Nunnikoven. I'm a cloud strategist uh, with a security company uh, called Lacework. Um, I have a strong background in uh, security, uh, forensic investigations. Uh, I help companies enforce the security controls and build the security controls that help enable privacy. Um, I am also a technology columnist for CBC Radio here in Canada, where I'm often explaining privacy situations to the broad general audience. Yep, and it, it's the the situations, right? That that I think where we need that's where we really need to meet. It, it's easy to for tech people to talk tech, and it's easy for consumers to click that "I accept" button, <laughs> right? And and just kind of move on and use the use the app and the service as they want to. Um, it, it's that middle ground where consumers don't understand what they're sharing who they're sharing it with, why they're sharing it, what can happen with that. And on the other side of that coin, the organizations have responsibility to manage that data in a, in a safe way, but then also use it uh, ethically. So I guess, Marco, I don't know if you want to kick it off, but the... the yeah, I, I, I do have a question. Which yeah, I, you go for it. I like to to start with this most of the time, even in the, in the few the recent most recent privacy conversation we had on ITSP magazine it's it's about the definition of privacy you know on one side you hear well privacy has changed it's not what it used to be like nostalgia i guess and uh and now though it's like well did it really or is just an excuse so we can let this new valuable or oil you know kind of resource, which is information and private information to keep driving economy. So I think this is an important philosophical perspective to, to start the conversation. So maybe we start just with, uh, with Jen. Is privacy really changed with society? Do we don't care anymore or do we just don't understand how to stay private? Right. Um, I think people do care, <laughs> honestly. Um, I think that it's become incredibly complex because the definition that we started with, at least with the kind of online space back in the, I would say, early 2000s, was this idea of control over your personal information. And that fundamentally is how we've thought about privacy. It's how we've thought about it from a legal perspective. It's how we built tools to protect privacy, where you know, the burden is 
really on you as the individual to kind of manage your own privacy. But in 2022, I think what most of us realize is that we're finally at a space where it's just not possible. I mean, even if you're vigilant, your capacity to manage all the different relationships with all the different companies that are collecting your information is just, you can't do it. You know, unless you're someone who has very few of those, but most of us, like if I look in my password manager, I probably have at least, you know, three, 400 entries for places where I've created a password. Uh, and that's kind of how I, I, tra I track that metric. And so just the idea that you could reasonably stay on top of all those things is absurd. And that's not even thinking about the ways in which information is collected about us through these ecosystem that are indirect, that we don't even know about. So all of those apps that are using third-party ad libraries to collect our location data or other information that's not transparent to us, you don't even know that's happening. So how can you possibly manage that? And so I think part of where we're at is this realization that it's just not possible if you're thinking about privacy purely as control. That or we have to build far better tools <laughs> to allow people to actually exercise that control. And I do think that's part of the solution because I think that it's not, we're going to keep having these multiple relationships with different companies, different apps, whatever it might be. Like, I don't see that going away, but there has to be easier ways to control this. But also, I think a lot of us would also suggest at this point that we are at the point in kind of the evolution of online services where we should be drawing boundaries and we should have regulations in place. And obviously we've seen how that's unfolded in Europe with the GDPR. Um, you know, that's certainly one model we could follow, but you know, the idea that we just have this, you know, constant collection of information, we don't really have control over it. We don't know who's doing it. That, that whole situation is just untenable, I think, going yeah. forward. So that to me is like the, the core of the issue. And let, right. we'll start there. And it's also what, what can you get when you, you give away your information versus what you cannot get when you don't, which is many times that dark pattern, which maybe we'll talk about later. So, Nicole, yeah. how about that? this perspective from, from the company side, how you can regulate this if it's not an ethical decision in the company itself? Okay. Is it an ethical decision? I, mean, I hope so. I hope that it is. I would wish so. Yeah, I mean, I think that being a good data steward is something that all companies should be going to. Of course, it's not necessarily the easiest way to monetize the data. I think, as you mentioned, data being the new gold. And, you know, Jen said, uh, you know, people are interested in privacy. I just saw an article this morning, uh, Pew Charitable Trust just did a survey. and I can't remember. It was either 76 or 79 percent of people care about their privacy. But it, it does have that problem um, of who's responsible for it yeah i'm responsible for my personal privacy i think jen that there have been some great tools put out there um you know google i think did a really good job if you actually bother to go through and and do their testing as a consumer because i saw an article like don't do this with google this weekend and i looked and i was like <laughs> i'd already protected myself from that one so there there are tools out there that if, if you want to do it um, but i think there's got to be just a a seed change. You know, New York proposed a law last year where um, it was making data stewards fiduciaries uh, to the data to the data that they're collecting. And realistically, in this, you know, with the proliferation of all of the data and the fact that we do have three and four hundred passwords and we've given away so much, um, it's hard for us to pull that back. It's gonna have the owners has got to be put on business to be um, responsible with the data and to follow the information that they're putting out there. 
you know, um, I think Sean or Mark, I'm not sure which of you guys said, you know, well, people don't really know what they're doing with their data. Well, if people like me as chief privacy officers are doing a good job, our privacy notice says what we're doing with your data. But what I'm doing with data at a B2B is not the same as a lot of these other companies. And that's not clear to a lot of consumers. You know, I've got a two page privacy notice. There are 50, 60 page privacy notices that are meaningless. And we do have to click through and say yes, or else we're not getting what it is we want or need. Um, so I think and I hope that over time that fiduciary duty model, which you know banks have and, and a lot of other businesses have, will take hold. Um, and, and it'll be interesting to see as we have this federal conversation um, here in the US, whether we can go to a GDPR model or not. Um, so that's all I have to say. What about you, Mark? <laughs> yeah, Mark, I, I want to get your specific perspective here, um, thinking about this from the everyday user, because we're, we're talking a lot about the business here. Mm -hmm. And we, we're, we're floating around the term GDPR. Many, many consumers may not, especially in the US, may not even know what that is. And so my question around the definition of privacy is who is responsible for telling us what privacy is? Is it Yikes. the organizations? Is it the government? I mean, because we, in, in the physical world, we kind of grow up in, a, in our own societies. They're different all around the world. And mm -hmm. we have expectations. Um, as we move to a digital world, does it change? And does the scale have an impact on that? Yeah, I think, I mean, so there is no straight answer because it is very much culturally uh, driven, but I think it's really intentions and expectations. And so Jen hit on it uh, in her description as far as there's a difference between user data and data about a user, but both can be private for that user. And I think that's where things really start to break down. So when I talk to people about, you know, social networks, there's a, a, a an immediate understanding because they understand the concept of that network of like, if I have a photo and I share it, you know, with Nicole and with Jen, um, that those are the only two people who should be able to see it. Right. And the settings in the social networks are reasonably okay for that to, for the average people to understand. And so when they look at that angle of privacy, they go, I kind of have a reasonable handle on it. Um, and it's somewhat manageable. Now the proliferation of account information and stuff. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of stuff we can do to make it better. But it's the second half of that equation that where people really start to stumble because the data about you that's collected requires an understanding of the technology underneath. And that's where there is a very hard and very big gap between the average user and the people in technology. And the challenge you get is the people who are making the decisions about what's transparent about the intentions of a system are the people who understand that system intrinsically because most of the time they've built it. So they have this huge amount of knowledge of like, oh, yeah, of course, we track you as you do these things. And of course, we then use a third party processor for that information, because that's the most efficient way to do it. Why wouldn't we do that? Whereas the average user is like, what? What do you mean that's happening? They have no idea. And I think that's where the privacy uh, idea or the goal of it really starts to break down, because it's hard enough to grapple around. I have this thing and I have shared it to the, oh, there's a whole bunch of things, you know, examining every little tiny move I make. And there's an entire economy behind that, that most users don't even have a glimpse of, let alone the understanding of the implications of it. Yeah. And Jen, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this same, same thing. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, it's, 
I think of this usually in terms of relationships. Um, and it's one thing for us to be able to manage those first party relationships, but those kind of cascading relationships, that's where it just, I think, falls apart. And that's where I have to wonder how well the fiduciary duty proposals may work, um, because it's, I think they make sense from the first party idea, you and the business that you're directly giving information to, but those kind of cascading relationships that are between the business and another business that kind of encapsulate your data, that's where I think the fiduciary model starts to probably hit some walls, although I'd love to hear what everybody else has to say about it. Um, but definitely, I think what Mark said was, I think, very true. And this is where someone like Nicole comes into the picture, is my read, where you have people making these decisions that know a lot about the technology. And I think in a lot of cases, you have good people who are just like, trust us, like, we're not going to do anything wrong, or we think this is reasonable. Um, and they're not necessarily out there to do something nefarious. Um, they're not trying to do evil. Uh, but at the same time, there's just no ceiling and no floor. And so I think like, in particular, one of the areas where we've seen this be really problematic is in the data brokerage industry, where I feel like the practices in data brokerage tend to just like, keep you going further and further down in terms of, uh, you know, as long as you don't set a limit, they will, data brokers will, will essentially sell everything and anything they can without any constraints. And so I just thinking about how you phrased that earlier, like who needs to kind of tell us what privacy means? I think it's more about who needs to at least set some rules around what are some of the kind of basic practices in the game that we think, hey, this is okay, or this actually just you know, this is not okay. You know, whether it's because people don't understand it or because it just has these, again, cascading effects that we just can't even possibly visualize, especially as a consumer reading a privacy policy, which we know they don't. <laughs> so uh, I read them, but that's my particular uh, weird thing that I do. Um, you know, we know most people can't read them. They can't understand them. Certainly simplifying them helps, but it is so hard to make that decision at one day at one point in time and understand what's gonna happen 15 years later, because, you know, I think one of the interesting things right now is that we are, we have a lot of companies that have been around in the digital space for well over a decade. And some of us just take Google, for example, some of us have a 15, 20 year relationship with Google at this point. And the data we shared with them back in 2006 or 2009, like we didn't necessarily think that, that would be around in 2022. So there's these really interesting long term consequences that I think are starting to emerge in this economy that again, it's really hard for us to even try to step back and think about what, well, what are the implications of me signing up for this service today if they're around in 10 more years? I have no idea. Mm -hmm. And if you ask two different people, many says you'll get a different answer to what privacy is for them. But nevertheless, it is a constitutional right, right? I mean, the, the, the privacy to to have a space for yourself? I mean, you're a lawyer, so I'm going to ask you uh, about this because I was kind of reading through all these and and like, where 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 do where are we protected to a certain extent? And then you make your decision. You know what I mean? Like, is, is there a line, a baseline where that's what privacy needs to be to start with? Should there be? Yes. Is there yeah. guidance out there for it to be? Sure. We've had the, the you know, FIPS, Fair Information Privacy Principles, for decades at this point. And all of the legislation that we've seen since then really does go back to those very core principles. When you say we've got privacy as a right, um, it's a fundamental human right in the EU. Mm -hmm. In the US, it's not. You have a mm -hmm. right to privacy from the government. 
Um, that's it. That's our 1974 law. Uh, we've got the sectoral model here so that you don't, um, you know, you're not able to, um, you know, have a global amount of privacy. You know, we've got HIPAA. So your healthcare theoretically is protected if someone's following HIPAA. And, you know, we've got GLBA for financing. Um, it's very specific on the type of data that you provide. I don't think that's sustainable long time, uh, long term. Uh, you know, we, we've seen with the GDPR, what is it? Gosh, we're four years in come this May. Um, last year, they finally started implementing fines. What was it? $1.9 trillion, billion dollars, something ridiculous in fines last year. They finally got um, their act together. I think to get a baseline privacy in the U.S., we're going to have to get there. Um, but we're, we're not there right now. Um, there are a lot of ideas about a federal privacy law, which does make it, it, it will make it better. Um, <laughs> I read way too much about this. They say uh, it will be $10 trillion over 10 years for businesses to comply with the patchwork framework that we have right now in the U.S. Um, it is very, it, it's just untenable. You can't. And, you know, I'm at a company that does frameworks. I think frameworks are more essential than ever because you're not going to be able to comply with all of these these regs across the world. You really need to go back to those FIPS. You need to go back to the core principles as a business to apply to them. Um, and if you apply them, I think as a consumer, you really like it. I mean, it is data transparency. It is what you're doing with the data. And those data brokers are evil as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I mean, I, I understand they've got a business purpose and that's great, but that transparency is very hard to get when you get to that level. And I, I think from a regulatory perspective, um, the regulators are seeing that. I know here in the U.S., Washington State's been trying to um, go through with a privacy law for the past, this is the fourth year. Uh, the main sponsor did a complete fallback this year. The proposal is data brokers and kids. And maybe that's the way we get there. You know, we, we start thinking and breaking it down. Um, the FTC is going after kids in AI this year. Um, so if we maybe go on that more focused area, um, of who we can get to, maybe we can get back to those those bigger principles for everybody. Yeah, and Mark, the the technology. I want to get into this a little bit. Um, the the technology makes data collection, even creation. If we think about mobile devices and IoT devices, smart homes, right? Um, I don't think a lot of consumers recognize that they're just creating a ton of information about themselves in their home, uh, listening devices and thermostats. And you might, they might think, who cares if somebody knows that I like my temperature set at 74 at night and 84 during the day, whatever it is. Um, well, now we know. Now we know. And maybe I choose those numbers uh, erroneously. You never know. Misleading. But, uh, no, you've not. So I, wrote an, I wrote a law review article about that back in 2015 on the IoT. And I think it was called Smart Washers Can Clean Your, your Clothes, but you know, privacy regulations may leave you hanging on a line. Um, because no one knows that that's what they're giving. And, and a lot of times on those IoT devices, you know, on our watches, on a, a Fitbit, where are you supposed to even read a privacy notice? You know, you're going to go through um, so that mm -hmm. level of transparency and the concern. And, yeah, it's not 70 degrees. It's the fact that somebody knows that you run your washer every day when you're not home. So they've, you know, hacked into your system and they know when you're not home. Like criminals can do this, not just stealing your data, but stealing your physical things. 
um, based on all of the information we give away through those smart home devices. Yeah. So how, how, how do we get control as consumers over that? I don't, I don't know if there's any way, I guess that the technology makes this so easy for organizations to create and collect and, and hold and share and sell that data. <clears throat> how do we as consumers leverage technology to uh, kind of counter some of that if we, if we want to? I'm pretty sure the GPS on your horse is going to say it's already left the barn. Um, and you're not going to get that back. Um, because yeah, I read that paper, uh, actually this morning, Nicole, and I thought it was, it was great. Um, and you know, it is that challenge where it comes back to intention, right? Like I buy a smart thermostat because I want to save on my energy bill. Um, right. But a lot of utility companies had that as the marketing campaign, but what a lot of consumers didn't realize was that that also gave the utility uh, company access to that account that ran that smart thermostat and the ability to control it themselves in order to maintain their utility service delivery, um, which if you go into explicitly may not be a problem. But the problem is, is very few people actually understood that was an explicit choice that you were signing on for. And whether you read the privacy policy or not, you still need to be able to interpret it. Um, and, the, you know, as I think all of us here are used to reading them. And so you start to see the key phrases, but most people don't. And, you know, with the, the as far as Nicole's question about like the smartwatches and stuff, the standard pattern, uh, you know, and this ties to Jen work, uh, Jen's work around dark patterns. The standard pattern for that now is, oh, we'll email it to you, but click here to agree already. And so you've agreed to something you haven't read and have told them you haven't read because they haven't even sent it to you yet. And so this challenge, again, comes back to expectations and an understanding of what the system needs to work and what it doesn't. And I think the, the where we're going to see improvement, kind of tying back to what Nicole was talking about, is as people who build these systems make better choices and build privacy in by design, we'll get better outcomes for the consumers. The problem is we're very much in a chicken and egg situation because the counter argument is our customers aren't asking for it. So why are we going to spend time building this into our systems? Of course, you know, the chicken part of that or the egg part of that, however you want to look at it is, well, they have no idea it's going on. So they have no way of saying, I don't want that. So I want something different and I'm going to vote with my dollars. So they don't know they're voting. So I think the only way out of this to start, honestly, is strong regulation with massive, massive stick attached to it to in order to force this change forward. Because anytime I have a conversation with general audience and explain something like an IoT workflow or what you're actually doing, what data collection is actually happening on a social network, people go from varied of being like, you know, cynical to absolutely appalled because they've entered into these agreements completely unaware of what they've agreed to and the scale and the scope of it. So I wish there was an easy answer, but it's going to be a lot of... You touched on two things, Mark. Um, One is the monetary part of this, right? It's easy for people to feel the pain when it hits their checkbook um, or their bank account, whatever. And the other is a visual, right? You you described painting a picture there. And... and the reason I went to the tech thing, I, I, I've seen ads for an app that says, I'm going to present to you all of your subscriptions to all of these streaming services and whatever it is you're using. And I'm going to help you save money. So I'm going to present to you all of the services, show you how much you're spending, give you an option to opt out. And and Marco, I don't know if if there's a way to opt out or not, but I mean, it's that that visual, right? Painting, well, painting a picture. 
Yeah, Angel, I'm going to take what you said and, and bring it to the answer that many people give, which is more technology. Like, in a way, you have technology is given this power, is also given a lot of good things. Let's not just be negative about all of this. But, you know, privacy obviously is that bad side of things. But so it's it's new technology. Now the company moving to hmm, privacy has value now, either they really believe it or not. It is definitely something that there is value in it. And there is many examples, many companies create their mission statement, vision based on privacy. So, Jen, it, I don't know, I'm thinking artificial intelligence. I know you, you, you're a lot into advanced technology. Can really technology be the answer to too much technology? Kind of. <laughs> so this is something I've been looking at over the past couple of years, uh, kind of the, what I would call just generally the role of intermediaries. And so, you know, we talked about earlier fiduciary duties, like could we could we now kind of back bolt fiduciary duties on these big platforms, for example? Uh, I think another way forward, but I do think it has to be regulated to be really effective is, you know, what type of intermediaries can we create that basically kind of act on our behalf? between these different data collectors and us individually. And I think there's a whole there's a whole kind of slew of ideas in this space, you know, from the, and this is work I did with the World Economic Forum uh, here in San Francisco, is just like, focusing on the role of kind of software intermediaries in the sense of like personal agents that try to, much like the password protection space today, you know, where you download an app that helps you manage your passwords, uh, you know, you can imagine having kind of a digital intermediary that helps kind of negotiate your privacy settings or kind of what your data you're willing to share with the different companies in this space. Um, but again, I think that without some level of assurance, some level of regulation that those intermediaries are actually going to work on your behalf, then, you know, you end up with potential you know, actors in this space that are just as bad as the companies, you know, the main companies that you might be dealing with because they'll just sell your data as well. And that's why I think it needs to be a regulated space. Um, you know, so agents are on one level. Um, I think another way into this problem too is to just think about what types of new kind of data governance structures we, we could come up with. Uh, the smart city idea, I think, is one that, and we and Mark may actually know something about this because this was tied to Sidewalk Labs in Canada, which was ultimately abandoned, but they did explore this idea of creating a data trust. And I actually don't know all the reasons why it was kind of declared dead on arrival um, in the Sidewalk Labs instance, but you know, you can imagine that if you are a city and you want to install smart you know, stoplights, signal traffic, you know, whatever, what type of whatever infrastructure that you want to use, instead of that data being owned by the city, owned, owned, and I'm saying owned liberally, I don't mean actually owned, um, or controlled by, you know, the individuals or by, in my case, Pacific Gas and Electric, you know, wanting to run my smart meter. Instead, you create things like data trusts, where the data is basically held in collective and there is you know, someone in charge of that data who stewards it and basically it says, hey, okay, PG&E, you want to use the, elect the metering data for understanding customers' needs? Okay, you can do that within this context. You can license that data from us, but you don't get to take it. You don't get to own it. Um, or what have you, you know, or customers, you can decide to, you know, if you want PG&E to access that data. Um, so, I mean, I think some of those different scenarios in these spaces have a lot of promise. The problem, I think, is that 
while some of them may be really useful on these kind of institutional or B2B contexts, the consumer context, I think, will be one of the hardest ones because none of us want to manage our data. <laughs> like, we just don't. Um, I don't want to do it. And I do this stuff for a living. I think about privacy 365 days a year, uh, as you were saying in the opening. Um, you know, so you, we have to think about ways, we, it, at least in the consumer side, that we get to something where, that doesn't end up becoming a burden. We don't all want to sit there. I mean, this is where we saw some of the ideas in the early 2000s. Oh, companies will bid for basically ads for your eyeballs and you can decide how much you want to pay. It's like, well, who wants to sit around and figure out like, oh, I'm going to pay five cents. I'll, I'll, you know, nobody wants to sit down and figure out those details. Like they want it to happen on their behalf. And that is maybe a potential space where specifically AI comes into the picture. You know, whether it's that you build intelligent systems that are driven by AI doesn't necessarily have to be AI. Um, but those are some of the spaces where I see these you know, things starting to come together. But I also don't see them coming together without, again, some basic ground rules to make sure that intermediaries don't end up being just as rapacious as the platforms are. Mark, I want to hear about your, your thoughts on this in, in context of smart cities, whether that project or, or otherwise. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that project was really fascinating. It was down in Toronto. Um, Sidewalk Labs uh, was a collaboration um, with some private partnerships um, and they were essentially going to um, redevelop and, and reinvigorate a, a chunk of downtown land. Um, and of course, it was going to be smart everything. Um, and so the initial plans were extremely ambitious. Um, and then they kept scaling them back a little bit. Uh, and, you know, the challenge, I think, where, where that eventually fell down wasn't so much um, the, the structure but it was the motivation for the private side of that partnership. So a huge part of their motivation was to, you know, to have this lab essentially in a city where they would be gathering all this information and have all this data about how this a community operated, um, which them is invaluable because now not only are they looking at individual behaviors, but they're looking at the community of behaviors to see if there's linkages between them. And if, you know, if I'm taking this action, what's the ripple effect? So they wanted access to absolutely everything and where things started to fall off the rails, a number of issues popped up as far as, you know, uh, timing, zoning, um, but where they really started to go there was control the data. And as much as they tried to set up the data trust, the private partnership wasn't super keen because it meant they couldn't do what they wanted to do with the data and um, because it would be people voting explicitly on what was going on. Um, and then sort of the secondary challenge there was because it was a city neighborhood, how do you get consent for the people who are just coming through the neighborhood? So it's one thing if you own a business there or if you live there and you're an active, like a, basically a permanent member, or at least for intents and purposes, a permanent member of that community. Um, and you know, you're uh, taking advantage of those services. But if you just go to, uh, you know, to frequent a store or to visit a friend, your data is being gathered at a level far beyond what would be expected despite the massive level of data gathering within a city anyway, um, that then they couldn't get the consent there. And so in Canada, we do have federal privacy uh, regulation um, covering both government and uh, companies. Um, and one of the biggest aspects of that with a company is if you're gathering data, um, it needs to be for a specific purpose and only that purpose, which is why, unfortunately, a lot of Canadian privacy policies have this wonderfully generic, broad, we're just collecting it to do business, um, which, you know, again, comes back to that you know, I guess it is, it is a more official legal, legal lawyerly language, but the, the intents and purposes is it gives them a carte blanche to do what they want. Um, and that's really was sort of the core of what happened with Smart Labs, where conceptually and the technology they were proposing for a smart neighborhood was really fascinating, really interesting. And if it worked well together, there would be some substantial improvements. 
to that community and the way it interacted. The problem was that the cost, uh, not just the financial cost, but the, the privacy impact, uh, the privacy cost as people learn more about it, opinions shifted. Yeah, and I, I can't help but uh, continuously think about being an innocent bystander. So visiting a friend's house and they have a listening device and your GPS is on, you've po possibly connected to their Wi-Fi, that device is listening to you, it now knows that it's you talking politics with your friend <laughs> or something else. And the, your city example, right? If you, even if you're just passing through, they know it's you and that what you're doing and they can take that information. But you made an interesting point. I'm going to go to Nicole with this because a lot of what we've presented thus far is kind of cringy. I'm, I'm nervous. I don't know how to get out of this stuff, but there are cases where, and, and maybe in that smart city case and many smart city cases where you actually want, and you may perhaps even need the things that come with sharing information. And Nicole, you're probably thinking, where's he going with this? I'm going straight to healthcare where personalized care, customized care. Uh, I don't know what you, what you want to call it, but the ability to understand your personal one's personal situation and look at their information in the context of other people's information to help them stay alive perhaps so the, the role of privacy there you know and it's interesting in the u.s because we do have hipaa hipaa's not it's not kept up with technology um, the amount of data that we have to do the things that you, you are talking about, um, especially now with the proliferation of all of these apps where, you know, I can get 10 years of my health records on my phone by logging in through a third party app. Um, HIPAA's not not ready to take care of that level of information. Uh, so then we get to the whole process of, you know, de-identification in order to do that and how you're able to take the data that, yeah, can be life-saving. And I worked on a project years ago where, you know, we were trying to figure out how to de-identify data into a system to help people. And I see, you know, four out of five of us are in glasses or in contacts. And how do you take the fact that this is the average prescription and make it so much easier for somebody to say, get that diagnosed online, as opposed to going to a doctor's office, which in a lot of places where you don't have access to opticians um, or ophthalmologists can be beneficial. But how do you share that data? I always think of the US as the wild west. We don't really have actual privacy laws that matter. Um, at least we never did until CCPA, and then everybody can argue, well, it's just people like Jen who have the good fortune to live in California, and they get that, and the, and the rest of us might get some ancillary benefits from it. Um, right now, I was just uh, I'm involved in a couple of groups, and they're trying to put together the ability to share that information, healthcare, and to talk about upgrading HIPAA to meet the current environment. Um, because we're giving away so much data, we do expect it to help, help our health outcomes. But your average physician's office doesn't have that information, yet you're giving away all of the information so you can have your eyes checked or your teeth cleaned or any of the normal types of things. And you know, if that data does go to the data broker, because you know, who knows, maybe that's a business associate under HIPAA, uh, you no longer, as Jen said, you no longer have control of that and you no longer have um, the information on there, which you know, to me makes, and, and I do like HIPAA because it does address with high tech, the, you know, the business partners, but getting control over third parties is definitely something that companies have to do. 
so that you can share that information a lot. And you know, just a lot of companies don't know even where they are sharing information. I am hoping that five years from now, internal processes will be using some of the technology that we can use to get on top of the ways that we're sharing data on behalf of the people who entrust us with it. But, but yeah, we're not there yet. I don't know. I don't know if we'll be there in five years. One can hope. <laughs> um, hope. <laughs> Jen, <laughs> yeah, you're moving your eyes around. You're, you're going to agree with me there. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, it's just always so frustrating, um, the kind of lack of action we have here um, in Congress. And allow me to just get one little jab in there while we're talking about that. Um, because, you know, we've had, we've gone through this so many times. Um, we've had many bills proposed. You know, it's been on kind of the congressional agenda at least since 2012, if not earlier. Um, one of my biggest fears uh, right now with kind of privacy legislation is in part just the inaction by Congress. But also I think one of the things we really need to discuss, <laughs> which Congress probably is not uh, excited to discuss, is just how much the campaign apparatus now depends on the same type of targeted advertising and data gathering that businesses do. And so, you know, we often look at this space and just automatically ex exclude nonprofits and campaigns. And I think we're finally at the point where we need to be very upfront with just how much uh, campaigns are dependent on the same infrastructure. You know, even if individual Congress people or senators may not be aware of that, you know, certainly the parties are. Um, and so just to say that, you know, we've had so much concern about lobbying by big tech, potentially, you know, softening the state level rules or, you know, preventing things from even passing, um, you know, the CCPA came into effect because of our ballot proposition system. You know, we rerouted around the entire legislative process um, and brought it straight to the voters in both cases, although the CCPA ultimately did not go before the voters. But it was because we were able to short circuit that in California that we got that law passed. And I think that's really meaningful um, as a catalyst. But just to say, you know, we need to really understand how much not it's not just about business anymore. You know, it's about nonprofits as well. And so we really need to think more broadly on that topic. So um, the big question for me is, is it is it too late? Meaning, you know, you, you've given away the data and uh, and can you take it back? The right to be forgotten. Can you really be forgotten? I mean, a lot of people may think like, well, they already know things about me, but it's not gonna, too late. There you go. So, I'm gonna just jump in really quick and say no, I don't go, think it's too late. Go for it, because uh, I, I I would like to start wrapping this conversation with some positive things. So yeah, let, let, let's see your thought on that. Yeah, just to say I don't think it's too late because at the end of the day, I mean I, I think of this from a couple perspectives. One is that you can delete data, you can get rid of it. There's nothing permanent about data at the end of the day. You know, whether it's you elect to delete it, your servers, you know, fry, like whatever. Uh, I will say this, especially as living in California, where in the last couple of years, you know, we've had power outages, we have wildfires, you're just really aware of how kind of tenuous things are. Um, and so we take for granted this infrastructure and assume that it's, it's permanent and that it's unchangeable. It's not. We can get rid of it. We really can't. Um, I mean, that maybe sound, sounds pretty naive, but at the end of the day, I would argue 
we're seeing that as a remedy. You know, we saw the FTC here in the US do that this last year. I don't, I can't remember the name of the case, but it was an AI case. Um, Ever album, I think, is now coming to me, where they basically said, delete the models, delete the data. You can't use it. Okay. So like regulators are realizing like this is a tool in the toolbox that you can force companies to do just to say, you know, I don't think it's permanent. Um, also data ages, you know, even though I'm concerned about how much data Google might have about me since whenever I started using Google 2002, 2001, you know, ages ago. Um, it's old. I change. They change. You know, so it's it's not as if the system is like the story is written, the script is there, and there's just there's no way out of it. I just don't believe that. I guess that's part of either my naivete or my optimism that keeps me in this space because at the end of the day, I don't think it's too late. Good, Mark. What's your take on that? Yeah, I think um, you know I agree with Jen. Um, you know, and I, I agree with pretty much everything we've talked about here. But I think it's also important that you know it's not always all bad either at scale, like data um, gathering at scale. So I give you a really quick Canadian healthcare example. Actually, we had our public health agency. So remembering everything is very different up here in Canada compared to the states. Um, and in response to um, the the pandemic situation, um, our public health agency, so our federal public health agency actually got all uh, a bunch of cell phone tracking data from the cell phone providers across the country to analyze community spread. And the initial, because our testing um, apparatus had been overwhelmed, and so they were looking for other indicators to say like, hey, where is this going to get bad? Um, now, the initial reaction was there was a lot of outrage because no one knew that data was being collected. But once they realized what it was being used for, Everyone said, well, wait a minute, this is actually a net positive for our community because the health agency was able to direct the vaccination supply to the right place. They reinforced the healthcare system where they knew they were about to get hit based on how people were moving around. And so for me, that keeps coming back to the idea of, you know, understanding what's going on and making an explicit choice. Because I believe in that case, if the choice had been presented to the community, everyone would have said, yeah, go ahead. It's for our benefit to have this analysis at scale and to have this data available we can do good with it. So it's not always bad, but anytime that choice isn't apparent or is being made on your behalf, that's when people start to feel really frustrated. And that's when we start to go down that rabbit hole because somebody else is applying their standards to your data. And I think that's really at the root of this issue. I wanna stay here. I wanna, I wanna have 15 minutes left of positivity here. <laughs> so Nicole, help me help me out with that. Uh, I mean, you, you you mentioned HIPAA needs to be updated. I mean, we, we need to update fast. And I think that's the problem of legal and society keeping up, right? Being at the same page, especially when technology accelerates so fast. So uh, how do you see things improving in the in the near future? Um, I, I think with the whistleblowers over the course of the past few years, the public conversation about privacy has exploded. Um, you know, and, and that's really helpful because now we do have, you know, almost 80% of consumers who want something done with privacy. Um, you've got businesses who want privacy laws whether or not they're the right privacy laws, at least it's a little bit better. You've got the US Chamber of Commerce weighing in on you know, the federal government saying, hey, we businesses, we need a uniform standard. Um, so I think there's stuff that's coming, whether or not from a consumer perspective, it's as good as we want. No, 
I mean, it's not. Amazon helped write the Virginia bill that got passed. It doesn't have a lot of legs. Um, you know, we, we get held up here on the, the private cause of action. So, and then I forget who, but said, do, you know, do we have a big stick? What is the stick to make businesses comply? Because, you know, businesses have to return money to their shareholders for the most part, and data can bring them a lot of money. So finding that midpoint where um, consumers will have the level of control, where the level of transparency will be out there, that at least some regulations will come to improve it um, or get it to the, the forefront even better, I, I think it's, it's going to be the best way we can go is, you know, transparency and people knowing about it. And people still don't. I mean, people are like, well, what do you do? I'm like, oh, I do privacy. I'm like, what's that? And then you say, well, you know, you get all those notices from Google and Facebook about updating your settings. That's what I do. Um, and they know that. So there's something tangible in it that people can understand. And if we take that and we build on it and we keep it going, um, then I think we'll have businesses lobbying to get at least a role out there that does incorporate those FIPS. It goes back to it. It really does talk about deletion, destruction, transparency, consent, all of those things that we as consumers want. Um, so then getting consumers on the other side, maybe we can break the inertia in Congress and, and get a little bit further and help people a little bit more. Um, but it's, you know, it's going to take pressure from, from all sides, I think. Yeah. And I like, I like the, the transparency uh, word there, Nicole. And I think it, it, it's interesting that you say people will, will talk to you about what do you do and what is privacy and you explain it in the context of, something that they're doing, right? The scenarios again, the situations again. So I want to do a round here of where you think the everyday user, general consumers of services online can go to, and I'm going to go all the way back to the beginning to understand what privacy is for them. Are there any resources you can point them to, to say, and it could be a specific app, go here or an organization or association, anything come to mind that, that would help us, every everybody, <laughs> kind of get a view of what privacy should mean to us or can mean to us or I don't know who wants to lead off. I'll, I'll lead off in saying that nothing is coming directly to mind and I think <laughs> that's a problem and an opportunity. That's the answer. All right, well, I'll do a plug for National Cybersecurity uh, Awareness. Uh, the NCSA Association <laughs> Awareness. They do NC the Awareness Month, but uh, the NCSA I know have a number of resources. Um, I'll go while folks thinking maybe we can look to the future next instead of uh, actionable resources. But I think this week is an important week for everybody, and I believe it's hashtag Data Privacy Week. We'll find things from all kinds of organizations, publications, nonprofits, companies are participating in this. So I believe if you're listening to this and going, uh, I get that it's important, but I don't know what to do next. Maybe a, a search for hashtag data privacy week might, might yield some results that are meaningful uh, to you. You might have to sift through stuff that doesn't matter, but you might still find some things as well. So, Let's shift it then and a view for the future. What super positive now, what does an ideal world of privacy mean uh, for us? What, what does it take to get there? 
Jen. <laughs> Nobody wants to Nobody. answer. I know. It's so hard. It's just there's so many different kind of tendrils <laughs> in every direction. Um, you know, I think short term, seeing some baseline privacy legislation in place, but I think in particular, the, I mean, the third party data collection, I think, is kind of the very most low hanging fruit from my perspective, you know, the either you, you outright. Can I give you an example of that? Sure. For... This is the, I'm using an app and, you know, the app is using, or the web page, you know, is using third party cookies, ad libraries, what have you to collect data about you and, you know, send it on through the chain, but you don't know it. I mean, it's, they've notified you in the privacy policy. <laughs> it's buried, you know, you don't see it. This is the thing that things like Apple's ad transparency tracking, you know, is trying to prevent um, is from apps kind of sending your data along. Um, you know, I think that's kind of the low hanging fruit in terms of having maybe the most direct impact on the you know, cascading data problems that we're dealing with today. So, I mean, I think that to me that getting either some regulation or some real action in some way, I don't know if it's really ever going to happen on the self-regulatory front, but um, preventing those practices or at least curbing them in some way where like Apple has, which is basically to try to stick that in front of you and say, do you want this? You know, and of course not everybody understands what they mean, but at least they've tried. Um, and so not surprisingly, most people are saying, no, I don't want this. Um, so, I mean, I think to me, that's the big low hanging fruit and the, the most effective bang for your buck in terms of kind of curbing what's been going on. I think longer term, um, the data governance things that I've, I talked about earlier, I'm just heartened by how many people are thinking about these longer term problems not just in privacy, uh, but there's some really, I think, creative thinking going around to rethink kind of the fundamentals of the internet. There's kind of this, like we've been at this for about 25 years you know, in terms of the kind of popular consumer internet, you know, where should, what should we rebuild? What should, be re what should we be thinking of? And so I'm really heartened by a lot of that work that's going on. Like what, whether that turns out into like tangible policy in the next few years, I think is debatable. But um, I mean, I think it still kind of speaks to that open spirit of the web, um, you know, to the extent that we still have that level of openness um, and people being able to contribute and rebuild the infrastructure. That I think is a positive thing. And so I'm glad to see a lot of that work going on. It's just a question of like what it will take to get companies to adopt it, you know, and whether you have to use the carrot or the stick to make it happen. Love it. Mark, to you next. and. I'll ask you to say whatever you had on mind uh, originally, but perhaps maybe something related to tech. Does tech have a role in the future? Sure. Yeah. And actually I was, I was thinking on the tech side um, because I, what I've seen over the last couple of years has been, I think a positive shift in that uh, let's say five, seven years ago, the, the, the name of the game was pull in as much data as you can and we'll sort it out later. And uh, you know, on the selfish side for businesses, I think they've now realized that's a lot of data and that's a real pain in the you know what to try to manage and it's expensive and it's not efficient. And so what I'm seeing now with the companies I work with day to day is they're now being far more selective about the data they're actually collecting because they realize it costs money to process. It's a liability when it comes to security because you've got to maintain a good set of security controls uh, around that data. Um, and if, you know, it, even with the malicious side of it, or not the malicious, but sort of the resale and, you know, negative side of it, 
they're realizing they actually have a better quality product to sell because they're getting rid of the noise. And um, where that benefits the, the consumer is that they're collecting less, right? So we don't need things like, I'm always amazed at how many apps on your desktop are connecting to things like Google Analytics. Like your desktop app, you shouldn't be collecting Google Analytics, right? That's just extra data you're collecting, extra liability, extra challenge. And we're seeing that reduce finally. And I think that's really a positive side on the back end of technology builders realizing, you know, even if they're not explicitly doing it for privacy, it's having an impact in that they're gathering less. Um, and that should make it easier to inform the people they're gathering the data about, about what they're gathering, as opposed to we're gathering this monster list of stuff. We're looking at, you know, A, B, and C, and that's what we're doing. And here's what we do with it. Here's why we gather it. I'm seeing that trend start to gather steam. And I think that's going to be a real positive for everybody overall. All right. So as we as we get to close to wrap, uh, Nicole, how about one tip from you for the everyday user? I know it's going to be hard to choose one, but is it read more? Is it read less? Read less. <laughs> <laughs> Just go for it. Um, I don't know. I mean, what, what would you do if a friend's ask you that? Like, what should um, I do to get better? So I just go to the other way because I think everybody's awful, and I say put a freeze on your credit because you're going to get, you're going to get hacked. And if you wait, uh, you know, until the end, and you get all the credit monitoring stuff, it's too late. Somebody's already got you, um, and that's so cynical and so bad. But it, you put it out there, and it's a trade-off. I, I do it too. I read the privacy policies, and I say okay anyway because I want the data. Um, and and I'm more sophisticated than other people. Um, so, yeah, I think that that is, um, you know, that's a hope. I also hope for Gen Z. Like, now that we have the public conversation, that they are hearing, you know, I, I think as 11, 12, 13-year-olds, and I've got kids graduating from college now, they just said, okay, 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 I don't care. And now they're hearing, like, oh, my gosh, I can't get a job because I posted something, you know, years ago of me underage drinking or something stupid. So if we get the level of consciousness to the next generation. We're going to have the millennials who gave everything away because it seemed like a great idea. We're going to have the old people who never got on the internet. And then hopefully the kids will be, you know, more savvy consumers um, to the extent of they're taking better ownership of their, of their data so that we won't have as many of these problems or needs going forward. I don't think that'll work, but I can hope so. Yeah. Well, we need yeah. to have hope. Excellent point. I think there is hope. I, it, it reminds me of a time I was at a at a party and somebody asked me what I did and I described to them what I do to some degree and and well what does that really mean and I I think I described some critical infrastructure compromise and they're like we're never inviting you to a party again you're a big downer but I guess the point the point I want to make there is they're not comfortable conversations to have but we need to have them right maybe maybe the critical critical infrastructure is a little overwhelming this particular uh, yeah i wouldn't start with that one but the point is this is reality we live in a digital world we're creating information we're sharing information it's being used for and against us um it's time to take a moment and recognize that and hopefully we got people to do that today as part of our data privacy week uh engagement and Nicole, Jen, and Mark, it's a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Really appreciate your time and, uh, and bringing your expertise and insight to this conversation. And everybody listening online, uh, thanks for watching. Stay tuned for 
the production of this. If you're watching live, the resources aren't there, but we'll we'll share some resources to the National Cybersecurity Alliance and other things that the that uh, Mark, Jen, and Nicole share with us as potential ways to get a uh, leg up on privacy. So thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Black Cloak provides concierge cybersecurity protection to corporate executives and high net worth individuals to protect against hacking, reputational loss, financial loss, and the impacts of a corporate data breach. Learn more at blackcloak.io. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you learned something new and the story made you think, then share ITSP Magazine with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our columns. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.